This is the East Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Kevin Pei from the Yale School of Medicine, Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah, Carrie Valdez from Covenant Hospital in Saginaw, Michigan, and Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, Advancing Science, Fostering Relationships, and Building Careers. Welcome back to the final recording of interviews conducted by Dave Morris and me at the 2017 AAST meeting. Up next, we'll lead off with Dr. Deb Stein and her thoughts on the brain injury guidelines as she was a discussant on a multi-institutional trial applying these guidelines. I'm standing here with Dr. Deb Stein, who is the Director of Neurotrauma ICU at Shock Trauma in Baltimore. She was the discussant on the paper presented by Dr. Khan, the validity and resource utilization institutional study. Deb, thank you so much for taking a moment to speak with me. Sure, my pleasure. Would you take a moment uh, before we get into the paper and explain to our audience what are the brain injury guidelines? So the brain injury guidelines uh, were uh, first uh, developed by Bilal Joseph and the group in Arizona with Peter Ree, and they basically noted that they were what they felt was a bunch of patients who had who met criteria for mild traumatic brain injury but had positive head CTs that they felt really didn't require the aggressive repeat imaging, neurosurge consult, admission to the hospital. And so they looked at these patients and they basically said, are there patients who have relatively minimal intracranial hemorrhage, either whether that be subarachnoid, subdural hematoma, intracranial contusions, that had a good GCS, 3, 13, 14, 15, who could be managed by a different algorithm rather than the routine, admit everyone to the hospital, repeat a CAT scan, and get a neurosurgery consult. And it looks like through the guidelines, they categorize these patients as a brain injury guideline or a big one, two, or three. Could you help us sort what's the difference between a one, two, yeah, or so three? Yeah, so the ones are, and I don't have it in front of me the exact size criteria, but it's basically these tiny little lesions. These are ones I, I, we call them in my institution ditzels, right? Things that we know are just, we're not going to do anything with these. Those patients could then be treated, or, I'm sorry, could be observed for a minute for about six hours in the ED and then. Uh, injury on CT scan, but again, have a GCS of 13, 14, 15. Those patients get admitted. They do not get a neurosurgery consult, and they do not get a repeat head CT. They do, however, get very careful clinical observation. If there's any change in their clinical status, and then obviously then they fall out of the guidelines. But it's basically re- reducing resources significantly with respect to the need for repeat imaging as well as uh, neurosurgical consultation. And the big three are really how we've treated everybody. These are people who get repeat head CTs, hospitalized, big and they get their consult. Yep, the big three Big three is basically what we traditionally do now, and those are patients who have larger lesions. And really one of the key things here is that all the patients have to meet the criteria of being a GCS-15. They can't be intoxicated. Before you send them out the door, they have to be neurologically normal. And that's really the key thing here. And then getting into and resource utilization with the application of these guidelines. Their study was a multi-institutional study. Could you summarize it for us? Yep, so they, they did this, uh, they basically applied these guidelines retrospectively to a population of patients. Um, and what they found were that they only had, I believe it was two patients um, that failed. These were both big two. They were both epidural hematomas. Um, and those patients, they then subsequently looked at everybody, and they refined the guidelines based off those results. 
And so what they basically said is, hey, you know what? They call this the Big Mac, which is super cute. <laughs> um, the basically epidural hematoma is the lesion that is at high risk of progression, and therefore those patients should they felt they would fall automatically into the Big Three criteria based on these these modifications of the original guidelines, regardless of the size. Correct. They also modified a couple of other things. They included some of the novel um, anti oral anticoagulants. They also had. Um, Put out some criteria for when what, what is it, what is what counts as intoxicated, what blood alcohol, and that type of thing. So they, really, they did some really important modifications on the original guidelines. But I think the real take-home message here is we still need a very large-scale validation. I will also make a complete pitch for Dr. for Dr. Joseph's uh, multi-center trial that is running through the AAST multi-institutional trial. Please, please, please. We, should, we really want to validate this because it's a really important um, set of guidelines that can really reduce resource allocation, reduce resource utilization without harming patients. But we need to prove that it's safe. Right. So at this point, we're not saying treat your patients differently. It's out there. We're going to study it. That's correct. Correct. Well, thank you so much for taking time with me. My pleasure. I'm here with Dr. Jeremy Holtzmacher, a senior surgical resident at the George Washington University Hospital in Washington, D.C. Jeremy just finished his podium presentation on the role of diversion in emergent colectomy for hemorrhage. Would you mind going over your data and what conclusions have you come to? Uh, yes, so we did a retrospective review of the ACS NISQIT model uh, using targeted colectomy module, uh, evaluating partial colectomies for emergent GI bleeds, and looked at patients that either underwent diversion with a primary ostomy or with an anastomosis and try to identify risk factors that would pretend to uh, putting patients towards diversion over anastomosis. What we found was that uh, within the confines of NISQIP, transfusion or the type of anastomosis you uh, had did not worsen 30 outcomes, specifically mortality, anastomotic leak, or surgical site infections was not increased anastomosis. Uh, and blood transfusion and type of anastomosis was not an independent predictor of worse outcomes. Which is an interesting uh, research you've come across. Jeremy was one of my residents, so we, we are inbred from the same institution. <laughs> uh, but I was taught if a patient's had a significant transfusion, that the safest thing to do is to give the patient an end ostomy. Uh, and what your data database and what you all gathered is that blood transfusion alone is not an independent predictor of a decision of whether you should do an ostomy or an anastomosis. A lot of the old dogma is born out of literature coming from different patient populations, specifically the trauma patient population. We all know the EAST guidelines with greater four units of blood pretends to worse outcomes, but we feel that most of the recent literature on the EGS population shows they're a different patient subset, different risk factors, different demographics, and so they need to be treated differently, and that's the genesis of how this study came to be. So the 30-day leak rates, 30 I think it's no difference if the patient gets transfused or not. I think it all has to do with the clinical picture of the patient. Uh, certainly there's a difference between patients that underwent massive transfusion or transfusion dependent for blood pressure maintenance compared to the patient that they bled, but were never unstable, uh, had no obvious contraindications to reconstruction. Um, this is that one, we can't treat our EGS patients uh, by just the fact they had transfusion as uh, contraindication to reconstruction with anastomosis. I think there's a bit more nuance with how you have to deal with this patient population. Hopefully future studies look at exactly how much blood, if it is a risk factor for these patients, where that inflection point is and 
where you need to start making further decisions on which patients needs diversion. And of course, like you've already mentioned, I think timing of that transfusion makes a big difference. A trauma patient coming into the trauma bay who needs three or four units of blood by the time we finish the OR, that's a different who's received three or four units of blood over the course of 24 to 36 hours as they have failed their IR embolization and their non-operative management. Agreed. Yes, exactly. Well, thank you so much for taking the time with me and enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you so much. I'm standing here with Dr. Michael Nance. He's just finished being part of a panel over the lunch session called Pediatric Resuscitation, What's the Big Deal? Mike, thank you so much for taking the moment to talk to me. You're welcome. Uh, some of the highlights from uh, the discussion really centered around how do we do massive transfusion uh, in children? How do we identify it and then how do we actually do it? And before we get into the details, I wanted to ask if you would in a actively bleeding patient, how do the kids act differently? Um, well, I would say one of the uh, early stumbling blocks with transfusing the patient is, is simply getting access um, to provide resuscitation fluid, whether it's um, crystalloid or But uh, it's important to remember that kids uh, are just like adults uh, in the sense that they have um, subclavian veins, jugular veins, um, femoral veins, which make it easy to gain access. And I think a, an approach which has become increasingly popular uh, is the use of intraosseous um, needles and access, uh, and it works quite well. Providers who don't deal with kids very often feel comfortable using it been established, um, it's a matter of what uh, product to use. Typically you'll start with a, some crystalloid, whether it's normal saline or lactated ringers, probably doesn't really matter. And then kids who look like uh, they're going to need transfusion, whether that's because of uh, lack of a physiologic response to crystalloid or, or obvious ongoing bleeding, um, will need transfusion. And then uh, most centers are now Um, there is still tremendous variability in uh, massive transfusion protocols across the country uh, and what is delivered. Um, but I think the important step is creating a massive transfusion protocol uh, so that you can facilitate the delivery of blood uh, to the patient when they need it. And one thing I, I found interesting that I needed to be reminded of is in children, their average blood volume is about 80 milliliters per kg. Massive transfusion in children, we're really defining as children who have lost about 40 milliliters per kg, so almost half their blood volume. That seems to be where the literature is defining when we're massively transfusing children. Once we've identified a kid that's in that category, what we should be using? Is it one-to-one, one-to-two? Do we rely on the blood bank? Tell me more about how you solve these problems. The um, defining what ratio uh, of blood product to use is coming out of the adult literature and coming out of the military literature uh, where they were demonstrating improved survival when the ratios were getting closer and closer to one to one to one um, plasma to platelet to RBC. Um, when civilian populations, uh, it becomes less clear that one to one to one is the appropriate place, but maybe one to one to two. And we're now getting some studies in the pediatric population, some of it coming out of that same military experience, um, which does not show a similar survival benefit for uh, the ratios. 
um, the data that is available uh, shows that the, the benefit may be there for a ratio of one to one to two, but probably not a benefit at one to one to one. And so I would say at the moment that our, our target should probably be uh, one to one to two until uh, the data helps us uh, clarify which direction uh, we need to go. And with the pediatric population, once we've started transfusion, is there a role for TEG? Can we use TEG like we do in the adults? Uh, we can use TEG, and that probably is the uh, appropriate way to go. It's being increasingly available in pediatric centers. I think it's very uh, commonplace, if not routine, in the adult centers. Uh, and I think as the um, data becomes available, as the equipment becomes available, it will become uh, more and more routine in the pediatric population to uh, allow for um, TXA. Are we using TXA in the kids? And if so, how do we do it? Uh, the resuscitation algorithms, uh, and it is, uh, I would say that the TXA, large volumes of blood uh, have been given. Um, the actual threshold or trigger to use it uh, is less clear, um, but I think massive transfusion protocols are gradually adding TXA uh, at the same time they're removing uh, factor seven. Well, thank you. It's, uh, it's difficult for most trauma surgeons, I think, to get adequate pediatric trauma training, let alone uh, general surgeons who are covering trauma. So uh, from those of us who did not have a robust pediatric trauma experience, we really appreciate these lunch sessions every year to help keep us up to date in the pediatric trauma world. Thank you. Sure, you're welcome. Okay, I'm standing here with Dr. Matt Hernandez and Martin Zielinski, who just presented their work on the podium. Uh, the project was reshapes. The increasing anatomic severity is measured by the AAST score is associated with hand-sewn versus stapled anastomosis. Matt, how'd you get into this, and what was it like doing the project? Good uh, use of the AAST grade would be applying it to the shapes uh, database. Uh, using the AAST grade has been uh, an interesting challenge where I've been able to um, appreciate the uh, difficulty but also the ease of the at all the op notes. Wow, a lot of work. Uh, so Matt, based on uh, what you uh, the data that you look through, do you think um, there's going to be, do you sense that there's going to be a widespread adoption of the AAST grading severity? I know that uh, adoption of these things is sometimes lower. What do you think? Um, I think, you know, if surgeons are already performing hands-on anastomoses for very severe disease and the evidence shows that it did so incrementally while it's a subcore analysis, I think that... Uh, this data plus you know other work both by Shafi and Savage and myself um, it's reasonable to at least try and start using it I think the best way to apply this is to put it into an app I think uh, there's always reticence to going backwards and looking at data and constantly grading things just do it when you're out in the operating room do it if you see it a CT scan it's not hard to do it's a very basic method um, and we already do it for other diseases in trauma so it's not uh, it's not impossible I think when the
degrading system. It's similar to what happened when uh, the organ injury sever uh, scale came out uh, with trauma uh, back in the early 90s. That became widely adopted and utilized and basically became a requirement to use in a good way. Okay, last question. Do you hand sew or staple, Martin? Both. Matt? Both. Excellent. Thank you. I'm standing here with Dr. Elliot Hout, who is the East Secretary as well as a senior surgeon at Johns Hopkins. Elliot, thank you so much for taking some time to talk with me. Absolutely. Love doing it. Tell me, how has your week been so far? Uh, so I love the AAST. It's a great meeting. It's my second favorite trauma meeting after East. Um, so I've had a really good time. It's always hard when the meeting is in your town to split between actual work and going to the meeting. Uh, but I did use that to my benefit a little bit. I, uh, I was asked by AAST to host a tour at Johns Hopkins Hospital. So we offered a, a historic tour of history of surgery as told through the lens of Johns Hopkins Hospital. So this week I hosted about 30 people from around the world. Uh, intensivists, uh, emergency medicine physicians, residents, fellows, faculty, full professors to run the gamut. Uh, they came from four continents and eight countries to Johns Hopkins to see the history of surgery. So I hired our uh, professional archivists from uh, Johns Hopkins and they showed us all around. Showed us the dome, which everybody knows, the quintessential dome. We saw the inside of the dome. We saw the outside of the dome. We saw the portraits of Johns Hopkins who founded our institution and then we went and learned more about William Stewart Halstead, who for all the surgeons out there, you probably know who he was, uh, arguably one of the most famous surgeons uh, ever in the world. Uh, we got to spend some time in the Halstead Museum, which is furnished entirely 100% with artifacts owned by Halstead. Uh, his desk, his chair, his right implements, his surgical instruments, his portrait, his, all these other things. So we had a really great time. And then at the end, I brought in guest, uh, John Cameron. So John Cameron uh, has been, was chair at Johns Hopkins for many years, very well known in the surgical community internationally. And the visitors really loved it. So Dr. Cameron came in and told some extra stories about Halstead. They obviously didn't know each other, but Cameron has traveled around the world to many places. Really great stories. And then afterwards, uh, a ton of people came up and, can I have my picture with you, Dr. Cameron? Can I take a selfie with you, Dr. Cameron? So that was really a lot of fun. So I had a great time uh, doing that tour. Well, that just goes to show there's certainly much more to the AAST meeting and all of our surgical society meetings than just the clinical content. It's always really, uh, it's nice to meet the senior surgeons who are currently working as well as also kind of take a look back in history at the surgeons who came before us. Thank you so much. Sure, and I would uh, just add, related to that, the meetings are uh, AAST or any of the surgical societies, but the other place you have to come to these meetings is hang out at lunch, hang out at the bar. Even if you don't drink, come and talk to people, schmooze, get to meet people, get to know people. Everybody's really uh, super happy to talk to young, engaged people who are gonna be the next generation that are gonna be all our mentees for the years. So uh, take full advantage of it when you come to a meeting like this. Thank you. Those are great closing thoughts by Dr. Elliot Hout. 
That does it for this three-part series for the 2017 AST Meeting TraumaCast. I hope you enjoyed listening to the TraumaCast as much as Dave and I enjoyed creating them. As a reminder, there are links to supplemental material discussed in these TraumaCasts. Thank you to Dr. Eastman for providing the information on creating a Stop the Bleed campaign at your institution, and to Dr. Napolitano for the 2016 HAPVAP guidelines. To find this supplemental information, just go to theeast.org, click on the Education tab, then the TraumaCast link. Under the description for this three-part TraumaCast, you'll see a link for the supplemental material. Many of our TraumaCasts have additional educational materials. If your TraumaCasts are automatically synced into your podcast app, don't forget to check out the east.org website on occasion to see additional education. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Committee available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, network and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.